Thanks for dropping in again. This is the third episode. Today we're talking to Dr. Hoi Chu. He's a full professor at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Although we recorded this in August, the subject is still very pertinent. His specialty might be literary theory, but as you'll hear, there are many layers to the subject today. I love talking to people who are passionate about a topic, so I can interview scholars, enthusiasts, professors, amateurs, librarians, students, academics, and many more. As you may have noticed, not all the episodes are Canadian history, but I am. So yeah, I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada. I guess now we move into some history, eh? I just want to thank you for being here today and doing this podcast. Is there a fun fact about you that I can share? Something that people might not be aware of? The fun fact is I'm a very boring person. Oh. <laughs> Did you want to mention your topic? Actually, my topic may be uh, what I would call cultural and historical dialectics, which is a, a fancy term for what I do. By training, I'm a literary critic. And in critical theories, there are many schools and because it is my specialty, we have to learn all kinds of schools. But we always have a home base, the one that we started as a framework before studying everything else. Mm-hmm. And my was uh, historic dialectics or historical materialism, which means we look at human conflict and the production of culture as a cultural material that evolves with a history behind it. So earlier I said uh, I actually don't like history. I find it boring. (laughs) It is true. That's why I'm not a historian, but I'm a user. So the historian work really hard to find what's believable and, uh, and you use all that I, when I do my, my study and I will use what they take out and so history is useful you just don't enjoy it history is useful it's like family medicine you take history of your patient doesn't mean that you really enjoy knowing about the personal life of your patient but that give you clues and important information to accomplish your goal which is the health and well-being of your patient. And my interest is the health and well-being of people, society, and history, a very important aspect. And so I use history. So whatever I'm talking about today is not going to be a historical research in that magnitude because it's not my specialty. However, I will need a framework for me to see a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And history is an important part of it. I think what we're going to use uh, uh, Hong Kong as a case study is because it is on the news right now. Mm -hmm. In 2019, August has been on the news for three months. And you have a personal interest in Hong Kong too? Well, I come from there. My parents and family still there, uh, friends on both sides of the conflict. So it's something that uh, I may have some knowledge without having to use third-hand study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have inside knowledge. And you wanted to start somewhere around the 19th century for the city? No, actually, no? it's not 19th century. If, well, first of all, we briefly touch on uh, historical materialism. Uh, maybe we move into that a little bit further. I hear people use the word materialism in churches, for example, which means 
something that is not spiritual. It's, uh, people who love to make money or people only look at the wealth of their life and things like that. It's called materialism or consumerism as a similar connected word. But in philosophy, materialism doesn't mean that. Materialism means we look at the world by the physical existence, not assuming that there's a, for example, we look at history, we don't assume that there's a God guiding it. We do not assume any specific social political thinking as the right one and certain others as the wrong one and look at history as a way to eventually get at the right one. Materialism means uh, we, we look at factually what's going on, economically what's going on, socially what's going on, as a way to understand history and its consequence, rather than seeing any predetermined value or intelligent being behind what is happening to history. So that is, uh, in many ways, come to really full understanding or, or conscious understanding through Karl Marx. And that's the critical thinking part. That is the critical thinking part. It's something that we teach. You can say Shakespeare is a genius. That's why he wrote all those plays. That's genetic or, or whatever. Shakespeare is inspired by God. Uh, that's one way to look at why his plays are great. Mm -hmm. But we can also look at Shakespeare as a, as a product of Renaissance, as a, uh, a specific history in time that allows someone who, who could do what he did. And over time, certain social historical condition allow us to consider him great instead of seeing him as inherently great. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a luck of the draw. It's something that happened within that time. Right. So, so this is the, the, the basic assumption of cultural materialism. The material evolved with a history, has certain condition for us to appreciate it. And that history, both in terms of uh, Shakespeare's background, the specific time close to the end of Renaissance, and subsequently the Western world's development that allowed us to appreciate his work, create our value that put into Shakespeare's work. So instead of thinking his work having inherent value, we look at the material world that allowed our appreciation of it. A lot of his words became part of the English language later on. Exactly, because it, it is the complete works of Shakespeare and the putting together of the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, as well as the legal documents that is required to be written down in England that eventually standardized English. It was a mess before. Oh, that. yes. So, <laughs> it had too as many language, influences. You know, yeah. So, that is another historical condition. So, in the historical materialism, we look at history as a condition that produces the world that we live in. So, what kind of examples else than Shakespeare you'd like to use? Well, we were talking about Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah uh, let's go there. So, you said how about going back to 100 years ago, mm -hmm. but that actually may have to go back longer than that. Okay, yeah. Let's give a little bit of a, a context to people who might not be familiar with Hong Kong. Well, for one thing, you look at CBC, for example, the Western media, CNN, CBC, etc. They, they're sincere. I'm not saying that they're fake mm -hmm. news. But anybody who interprets something has a certain framework to go by. In, in our world, it's kind of like democracy, good, totalitarian, bad. 
Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of have that. And that is a really simplified way to look at the world. And it, it, it leads to many misinterpretations that surprise, it, that surprise us because whenever there's a democracy, in quote, movement, mm -hmm. we tend to side with it. Mm -hmm. And that happened in Egypt not long ago, the Middle East. We thought, oh, there's something really great coming out. There's a big democratic movement. Now it, it all turned into crap. It is because we have certain predetermined value to the political system that we are accustomed to. And then when you deal with something like China, which has an entirely different political system, especially because it's communism, we often have certain baggage that come with the world as well. Yes, so, the Communist Party in the World Wars. And all that. And... Yeah, so quickly we, we have a... Even though we try not to, we often have a very quick judgment out of the fact that, oh, that's communist China against people who want democracy in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And then not very easily we will side with the protester. Now, first mm -hmm. of all, my position, I'm not against what they're protesting, although I don't think they're doing it very well. Efficiently? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and turn into a really crazy violence right now. That is a very complicated matter. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that uh, I'm taking one side over another. Mm -hmm. You're I'm, just analyzing it. As I'm just analyzing it. the fact that a lot of uh, coverage that we have is out of a very quick judgment without the background. And so first of all, I would defend communism for a second. And I will also defend the Democracy. protesters as well that I hope produce a more neutral ground in understanding the issue. Now, how do you defend communism? Well, if you find a picture of China, I will recommend Nanjing. Beijing means northern capital, Nanjing means southern capital. That mm. was one of the major cities. That one particularly because it relates to Hong Kong later and also Japanese massacre of that city mm -hmm. and and there's a really good place to look maybe just a hundred years ago 1990 uh, or you can go early 20th century or turn of the century a photography was still relatively young and then take a picture of Nanjing now or shanghai for that matter oh, yes. it will even bigger contrast and then you you ask yourself is communism a bad thing and the the difference is China from developed from one of the worst country in the world to the second superpower in the world now. And they have more than a quarter of the world's population. Now, that has nothing to do with any political ideology. We just start with that. And now, we may have to go farther than that, back to the 18th century, probably the middle, there's no exact date, Mm -hmm. That is when British people started to import opium to China. I'm not saying that that is the cause of the weakness of Chinese people, but there was certainly the symptom. There's some fractures in the system. You have a country with the people who are primarily interested in getting doped. And it becomes such a serious problem that even a really corrupted empire tried to ban it. And that is the prelude to the whole thing. Now, Hitler, as well as Napoleon, when they invaded Russia, they thought Russia was the easy country to squash. Mm -hmm. Both of them made a grave mistake. They stepped their the feet in and they could not pull the feet out. But China was the easy target to squash. i give you an example. When any country in the 19th century 
that tried to fight China can reach the capital in days. And that happened again and again. Uh, the first opium war, there was 1840. It started with 1838, when good official of the Canton province, his name is uh, Lin, L-I-N, Lin Zi Shui, I think in, in English uh, is L-I-N-T-S-E, H-S-U, you can Wikipedia him, yeah. <laughs> he's on there. He tried to actually engage the law of stopping the smuggler, so, not even the government, okay. and, and confiscated the opium. He confiscated uh, 50,000 cases of opium from the smuggler. And Queen Victoria sent the navies on behalf of the smugglers to fight China and reached Lanjing and signed the Treaty of Lanjing in 1842. That is how Hong Kong became a British colony. And basically, I use everyday language. Within a year and a half, Britain basically beat the crap of China. All of China, not just Hong Kong. All of China and took Hong Kong in a treaty. Uh, it's not just Hong Kong, actually. That includes, you can check on this, I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I think it's 280 million grams of silver and things like that. It is so really, really expensive. Were taken. Not some, huge, Many of the them. huge, huge resources. We are talking about the 19th century right now. And why was Hong Kong taken by the British? It's an entry port. So for it's those who might port. not know, Hong Kong is an island. Hong Kong is an island in southern China. You need there to reach China from all around Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. which is actually a really clever choice. Of all China, all the British people wanted was Hong Kong. Yeah, they didn't have the airplanes and the easy access. Now we have to go through waterways. Exactly, there was mm-hmm. a harbor. And the harbor actually is still called Victoria Harbor now. Really? In Hong Kong? <laughs> in Hong yeah. Kong. Uh, it's called, still called Victoria Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guess who was the empress yeah. <laughs> of the Hard time? Hard to guess, yeah. <laughs> so so Hong was... Kong wasn't used for its resources as much as it was used for the entry point at that point. Yes, Hong Kong okay. has no resource. That is the stupidity of uh, independence movement in Hong Kong, is that if Hong Kong tried to become independent, uh, China actually doesn't need to send troops. They just need to turn off the water. Mm-hmm. And cut off access. Cut to... off all, uh, oh, the water is there, the major things that Hong Kong needed. Not to say vegetables and, and meat and, and everything wired. Um, mm-hmm. So that is why Britain won Hong Kong. And then 1862, another same conflict is called the Second Opium War. This time was between coalition of French and, and the British. They did another one. And that led to the run eventually eight superpowers in the world to join forces. Each of them took a part of China. China was split up amongst eight yeah. different And they are, they're all along the coastal line, uh, Japan, Portugal, Germany, Russia, the United States, etc. And some credit to United States, they took a lot of money from China too. And the United States was the one country that we invest the money they took from China in China to build certain a few university and so on. Mm-hmm. So they're investing to to modernize to help modernize okay. China. It, it, our goodwill in a good way. That was a that was a good time. So among the eight countries that took China, the United States was the one to go back to rebuild China a bit too. Mm-hmm. So we must give the state some credit. Canada was nowhere, so... Yeah. Yeah. Canada did not get involved at that point, I guess. 
no, Canada was too insignificant among superpowers. So <laughs> sorry to say that, but <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the superpowers that has great navies: Spain, Portugal, Japan, Russia, or all these big superpowers of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Canada, maybe it's too nice. That's why it doesn't develop that kind of military might. But mm-hmm. but in any case, uh, it's no part of it. So um, at that time, for the Second Opium War, then how did China retaliate? Were they able to take some? No, of it they back? no, no, not at all. There was a all. really corrupted and broken empire. Okay. Uh, we are actually called the Southeast. I'm translating from Chinese, but it wasn't actually an English term. Mm-hmm. We're the sicky sick of the of the Southeast Asia. Imagine most of the population were drug addicts. So that is why such there was a big deal, and that was why so much money is flooding into England for the opium. That's why they want the pot, and that's why they have to fight. That's how you fund the military might of of England at the time. In eighteen ninety eight, Hong Kong was not big enough, so the British people also rented in quote. Uh, Kowloon and so-called new territories from China, which is the northern is side okay. of the of Hong Kong. Did they have uh, strong resources there also? Is that why no. they chose that part? Same thing. Uh, well, Hong Kong is an island, and in order to have a harbor, you need two sides. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and British got the whole harbor, but mm-hmm. not much land after what is called Jim Sha which is the Kowloon side that is near Hong Kong Island, and they want a little bit more land, much farther north. You need lands. You you need you need factories. You need mm-hmm. storage. So they just want, need needed more land, and they rented a bit more from from China. I actually don't know how much the rent was. I I think it was one dollar actually. Yeah. And and so called rented. And that is why after World War Two, there was a agreement in the world among United Nations that the former colonies should return to where they belong. And China didn't feel that it was ready to take Hong Kong back after World War Two. Communist China took over China in nineteen forty eight, and that was shortly after World War Two. It changed from. Then one of the weakest country in the world to now the second biggest superpower in the world mm-hmm. is all under Chinese communist rule, but in the very beginning China was nobody, mm-hmm. so so it didn't feel ready nor Britain feel ready to return Hong Kong to China. So they made the agreement. So how can we wait till nineteen ninety seven, when Kowloon was supposed to be up, the new territories supposed to be up with the rental. How about you return everything together? And and it happened. But of course, um, that we come to the more recent history. In 1967, I was almost one year old. <laughs> China already moved from a country that you can squash any time. But by then, they already helped the Koreans succeeded in keeping the United States from taking over the entire Korea. That's how we got North and South Korea. Vietnamese War was about to come. And so China was no longer that second weak country. People actually really liked communism in China. Because it protected them and it kept them It strengthened the country. That was before what now known as the Cultural Revolution, which was a big social political disaster within the communist country. 
that was a little before that. And so Hong Kong's youth at that time was very pro-socialism. And they started the previous riot. In, in the 60s? Are in 1967 talking? in yeah. Hong Kong mm-hmm. for communism. Trying to get rid of the British government and have Hong Kong return to China. They weren't. Were they part of what we call the Commonwealth, such as Canada's part of the British Commonwealth? Was Hong Kong part of the Commonwealth, or were they a British colony? A British colony. So they it has always been a British mm-hmm. colony. That's how you get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, and it was not a very good government before that. You have places which we have a sign saying that Chinese and dogs cannot enter. British people enjoy certain prestige that every Chinese don't get, and living standard in Hong Kong was really low. After the riot, the, the British government actually learned something, and so instead of doing what they did, they started public housing, they started to encourage commerce and, and industry, and started a totally different way of ruling Hong Kong. Okay, instead of squashing it, they tried to make it flourish. Yeah. Part of it involve uh, public housing and all that okay. because, and I think this is something that the current Hong Kong government should learn is that it doesn't matter whether you're totalitarian or democracy or whatever political crap you label yourself. If people live well and happy, and I'll I'll come back to it in a minute. What what was wrong with Hong Kong right now? But that 1967 was the turning point when Hong Kong actually changed dramatically and led to this particular city in China that belonged, or at least temporarily, run by the British government, which everybody knows should return to China, but both sides believe that not ready yet, mm-hmm. started to flourish so much more quickly than China. Because right after that, Hong Kong developed because of the British people changed the way they they run Hong Kong, and China, conversely, run into cultural revolution. Mm. And everything that developed before that kind of turned 180 degree, turned really badly. And uh, that created a, a kind of contrast by mm. the time we reached the 80s, when China walked out of the cultural revolution and felt ready to develop economically. That was the early 80s or mid 80s. That was when I when I was a high school graduate, I went to China and you saw many changes at that point. No, no change that that was before. No, that was about to about. I remember going to a bookstore and bought uh, then a a new translation of the Nobel Prize of Literature 100 Years of Solitude uh, and read it and find it amazing that they they start to to make internationally acclaimed movies translating Nobel Prize of Literature Mm -hmm. and, and trying to get ready to reconnect with the West of the world and develop. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the beginning. I, living condition between where I come from in Hong Kong when I go up to China was huge. In a good way or in a bad way? In a bad way in China. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like going from, going from uh, Toronto. No, it's far worse than that. From Toronto <laughs> to to a remote uh, indigenous community. Out north where they don't have... That most of the houses yeah. are moldy. And, and that is what we mean by indigenous people live in a third world condition. And, yes. and back then, China was, was in a third world condition. So and this Hong was Kong, prior to that Hong Kong was the top of uh, the world. So Hong Kong people had certain pride uh, as being Chinese and top of the 
of the Chinese list. And then, yeah. the, of course, not long after that, 1997 came. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong has to go back to China. And China was at the beginning of its attempt to develop economically. So at that time, the leader was uh, Tang Xiaoping. Really somebody, I think, is really great person. Uh, he thought the problem of communism was that you always have a hero worship. Whoever led the communist revolution they became the, the god. They became the god, became mm-hmm. the totalitarian. So he actually said, no funeral for me and when I die. Don't make me a god. Don't make me a god. And, mm-hmm. and then he set up a, a small group which will keep changing. To bring in new ideas. To bring in new ideas so, so that nobody will become super dictator. Okay. And that is actually, I think, is the secret success that nobody realized. Mm-hmm. You only think about communism as totalitarianism. Yes. Say the breakdown of Berlin Wall also happened in 1989, I believe. And the subsequent ending of uh, the USSR. A lot of communist countries, after they disintegrate, they go into democracy and then go into chaos. And it's because democracy with free market cannot suddenly work overnight. It takes a lot of building. It takes a lot of building, a lot of education, Mm -hmm. a lot of learning about negotiation. There's certain rules and manner you need to learn. It's a game rule you need to follow. Well, I mean, we go back to a long time ago before democracy was even a thing in Europe. And I mean, there there was chaos. And also, can you imagine Quebecois trying to get independence and break into the parliament? And uh, graffiti, the the parliament. No chaos. <laughs> and and the ochre crisis, mm-hmm. indigenous people fighting to protect their burial ground of an expanding golf course. We send in the military. Mm-hmm. So you need to put that in perspective when you look at the conflict in Hong Kong as well. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by governmental force or and, 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 or, and violence? Yeah. Don't forget that even Canada oh, with indigenous yeah. people, we, we actually send in the army just because a few indigenous people dressed in a scary way and I think try to protest, try to a, protest yeah. the burial ground. And uh, in a crossfire, a policeman was hurt. Riots and going against the government and such. I mean, that's a very common history issue yeah. in every country, yeah. probably. Yeah. So that needs to be put in perspective. Mm-hmm. And so in the 90s, of course, Tang Xiaoping, that great guy I'm talking about, also has a very imaginative uh, way to solve Hong Kong's problem. That is, you have one country and two systems. Okay. So China is socialist, China is run by communist mm-hmm. party and and it will remain so because even though they try to develop capitalist economy, it still needs a stable yeah. power to hold it together. And that is exactly why we were such easy people to beat the crap off because China had weak governments. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't understand that, you don't understand how to deal with China politically. People don't understand why don't you just let Hong Kong be independent? Why do you keep on giving Taiwan such a hard time trying to keep it as part of China? Why is China reacting so illogically? Sometimes it's even against its own economic benefit to do what it does. But if you think back about 
that history of this sick China and how communism actually evolves as a way to fight this superpower, the corrupted Taiwan government, which was ruling China before communists and the Japanese invasion. There's a lot uh, of history there 20, showing that. Tw- 280 million people died fighting Japanese. And then you can understand why one China is above everything for the Communist Party. Money not important anymore yeah. and, and so on. And I think it's a bit outdated now, don't get me wrong, but that is where it comes from. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's worked for them for some time now. It's what it is, what it's evolved to do. It is its purpose, its meaning. To change that is, is basically change identity of the, of the whole being. And only history can give you that information to understand that identity. Money and power cannot explain that. So that was uh, the invention, one country, two system. So Hong Kong, remain Hong Kong. They weren't democracy, remember? It was yes. a British colony. Now, here is the fun thing. The large governor of Hong Kong, knowing that Hong Kong will go back to China with its independent system, he developed democracy in Hong Kong. Now, put back in perspective, since 1840, Hong Kong had no democracy. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, about a decade before it returned to China, they were talking about democracy. They started election of legislation councillors. China said, okay, fine. As long as the chief of Hong Kong is elected, not by common people, but a group of a thousand some people, Mm -hmm. we're not talking about a small committee, a thousand some people, represented in all sectors of Hong Kong. But all these people must swear in the fact that they do not want Hong Kong independence. So you see, as long as Hong Kong is part of China, they don't care what happened in Hong Kong. But this created a really, really bizarre situation in my my own understanding because nobody said that. I, I think I, I'm being original here. Okay. <laughs> Is that you have a totally unaccountable chief executive of Hong Kong. Why? Well, once you elected this person in Hong Kong, China will try to not to intervene with Hong Kong politics. So if she did badly, you can't take her down. But if she's not democratically elected, let's say you, you like Trudeau, you vote him in after four years, uh, I, I'm not sure, yeah. you can vote him out. So you have a scan. He actually, he did exactly what the Hong Kong chief did, overly confident about herself, did something wrong and refused to apologize and get the people mad. Now, why would Canadian not mad like Hong Kong people? Well, if you look at what happened, if it is Shanghai, communist child will fire this mayor. If it is anywhere in Canada, you vote this person out. Mm-hmm. But in Hong Kong, you cannot do either. So See the they, frustration? They don't have a specific <laughs> term. They have, they just, until they die or until they change? They have a, a specific term, but you don't go out because you did badly. Okay. You can't fire her. You can't vote her out. Mm-hmm. And, and that is very frustrating. Now you understand the mm-hmm. anger. Yes. Absolutely. And what happened was uh, there was a murder in Taiwan. And the, the murderer came from Hong Kong and returned back to Hong Kong. And Taiwan is the really special case. Theoretically, it's part of China. But it is not exactly a third system. And Hong Kong really want to help Taiwan and get this murderer there. 
And so they try to develop a law that will allow them to expedite this murderer to Taiwan. We're not talking, we're not talking about China. Mm-hmm. But she drafted something. It will make sense, right? You, if you committed a crime... And you get caught. You get caught mm-hmm. and you can be sent to China. Okay. Now, because this is the problem, you can't say that you can be sent to Taiwan. Remember, communist China won't let you. Yes. Taiwan is part of China. It just happened that the, the Republic of China, the previous government, went to Taiwan and the United States sent the army in between the uh, Taiwan and China and kept the communists from, from taking over Taiwan as well. But it was part of China. So Taiwan was part of China. Taiwan was part of China. It's indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And during the 19th century, the Japanese took it. I think it's around 1862 or mm. something. Uh, and then when the capitalist, very, very corrupted government left China, they went to Taiwan. But China would not let Taiwan to claim to be Taiwanese. They have to be Chinese. And so how do you write this law? Yeah, it's very <laughs> tricky. But there was a deadline to send this criminal to Taiwan. So Hong Kong government was trying to push it. But Hong Kong is in power lawyer. They really don't want to have anybody caught in Hong Kong being sent to mainland China. Many people are afraid of commerce. So they try to get rid of this law. There's some good ideas. Uh, say if it's a Hong Kong people committed a crime elsewhere, especially in mainland China, all you need is to have a supplementary law that says that they will be trialed in Hong Kong. I think that's a good idea. But this new chief executive just wouldn't listen to anything. You don't understand. The lawyer said it would be really hard to do this. And said, no, you don't understand. And, and she tried to push it through and the people get really angry. To this day, she still wouldn't say that I, I withdraw this law because by saying that, she made a mistake. So that is part of the anger. It's part of the reasons why there's protesting and they want Part to... of the reason, but it blew up so big, partly because, also because the prestige that I find myself in in the 80s was gone. Mm-hmm. Now the boss is China, the rich people come from China, and, and Hong Kong people didn't like that. But more deeply, it was because the one country, two system, remember, it was a very successful elite part of the society that elected the leaders. top executives mm-hmm. of Hong Kong. That small group enjoy a kind of elite prestige position. That power came from the people voted them to. So, of course, they serve this elite group of people. So somebody who might not quite understand, is it similar to, let's say, in the United States where the community is electing a mayor and then, you know, then you have senators and you, you kind of go up the chain? No, doesn't go no. up the chain. Imagine the Prime Minister of Canada is not elected by one vote per person, but mm-hmm. we find the top leader of the industry so commercial in education, okay. commercial industry, education, or this most successful 1%. Okay. These people elect the Prime Minister. And what will the Prime Minister do? They, they will protect the benefit of the people, this 1%. And that's what happened in Hong Kong. Even though we vote our Canadian leaders with one vote per person, Trudeau will still protect the corporations in the name of protecting jobs. And so you can imagine what happened in Hong Kong. And, and since 97, Hong Kong stopped public housing programs. Not entirely stopped, not like before. And they, they get all the street people off. 
the the people run business in the street. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, Hong Kong doesn't have Canadian winter. No. <laughs> you walk down the street, you get all kinds of uh, people selling food very cheaply. So and they're really delicious. Yeah. Oh no, no, you're much less healthy. Than no, you. much less healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, guessing uh, probably seafood also. Seafoods, yeah. uh, uh, fish balls, which is one of my favorite, mm-hmm. and and you can actually get a really cheap meal that way, and that keep the price down in the bigger stores mm-hmm. and also the rent will be under control and now yeah. they push all of them away okay. uh, why well a majority of those people who, who voted for this chief of hong kong are in the estate business land and, and rentals and so it looks like they're cleaning up the street it looks like all that and then of course you drive the housing price, price. up now before i when I left Hong Kong, I came to Canada. I come with uh, $4,000 a year to spend, 1987, including paying tuition. So I have $2,000 in my hand. I rent a really cheap room and I cook my own food. I did not wear out once. Whenever I go out, I, I look at the price, even McDonald's, convert it back to Hong Kong dollar. <gasps> That's expensive. Yes. When I was doing my master, that was four or five years later, no, no, no. After my PhD or something, my first daughter was born. I was in Hong Kong, more or less equal. Two years ago, two summers ago, I went back to Hong Kong. Even with my earning as a food professor, I find it too expensive to eat there. So the food prices went up quite a bit. It's just a symptom. Everything went mm-hmm. It's because of rent. It's called real estate, totalitarian state, okay. <laughs> or whatever, monopoly. And, and also ultra expensive housing. Is my there... sister is the manager of uh, special events for one of the best hotels in Hong Kong. When Trudeau came to Hong Kong, he stayed there. She's a manager. She couldn't buy a house. Wow. Uh, so she said it was because in her youth, she didn't Save do enough. anything. But I said, what if people in their 30s are now and had your job when you were 30 years old? Can they have enough down payment without other help to buy mm-hmm. a house? No matter what. No. So there's a big imbalance. Yes, and so you can understand the frustration of the young people in Hong Kong now. As I said, I'm saying good and bad things for both sides. Mm-hmm. This is really, in my view, what the protest is really about. It is this rather hopeless and and frustrated youth. They think that democracy can fix it, which I disagree. Their frustration is not ungrounded. Now, I, what I hope is Hong Kong government learn as the British government learned. To help the youth. To help the youth to not to work for the benefit of the real estate the 1%, empire. Yeah. Uh, the everyday people have to be happy to have mm-hmm. stability of the society. I feel like that's pretty much any country. It is pretty much any country. It is something that the democratic world tend to forget. You can see what happened in the United States or Ontario itself. Uh, people's everyday living became so bad. If you look at our, our students as well. It's a uh, terrible situation they're in. Terrible situation. And yet I, I'm surprised that our youth actually don't do what Hong Kong's youth is doing. <laughs> uh, We're too nice in Canada. <laughs> well, there are protests and there have been strikes. There may be, and, yeah. but that is exactly the lesson to be mm. learned. You can't just work for the 1%. True, yeah. And that is actually why some of the 1% actually give away their wealth. That You have to redistribute the wealth in such a way that uh, the, society. the society has to be mm-hmm. happy. doesn't matter what political system you are in. So, this is my thesis. A funny, yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, thanks so much for all of that. So maybe you don't love history, but you can appreciate it. 
I use it. <laughs> it's very close. It's very I, close. I know it's important. No, yes, absolutely. But studying history is a pain to me because it's boring. <laughs> and there's so many people who enjoy it, so there's no problem there, right? Well, as long as the historian do the work for me, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. That's very good. We'll deal with that and we'll say that. We'll agree on that part for sure. Yeah, I know. Just like the politics are always a little scary to me because I don't quite understand all of it. So I uh, much more appreciate older history where the, the political systems are a little more, more fluid. More remote. Yeah, more fluid. <laughs> when Foucault wrote about the history of the Medicare system, I think it's the, the history of the clinic, but I forgot which book. Oh, no, no. Uh, Methods and Civilization, History of the Mental Health Institutes. He said that in the preface, what I'm interested in is the history of the present. The history of the past is not interesting to him nor to me. It's the history of the present. This is how we come to the point where we are. And what does it matter for us to understand where we are? How we got to this point. How do we got to this point? They say history repeats itself. And that seems to be a very common thing that people say, even if they're not historians. But you can see some of the patterns that humanity tends to repeat, yeah. whether it's in a, you know, in a war context or artistic context or whatnot. I appreciate that thought, but I will spin on that a little. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think history repeats itself, but I agree there's a human pattern of behavior mm -hmm. that repeats itself. And sometimes the labeling is misleading. Very true. Things like mm -hmm. democracy, totalitarianism, or those are, can be very misleading because this is the behavior. I don't see much different in terms of behavior. If humans you are humans. Yes, if you yeah. compare the red guards of the Cultural Revolution, which is the far end of the leftists and the more radical side, I'm not talking about everybody protesting in Hong mm -hmm. Kong now, but the more radical side of the people that is protesting in Hong Kong, they have very similar behavior. For example, the university students actively protesting went a little bit violent, not a little bit, quite violent. After they did graffiti on the legislation council, the president of the university said, we understand your cause, but don't be violent. And they surrounded the residents of the president. Clarify yourself. No, no, if you, you try to make a democracy of Hong Kong, you need to respect different ideas. Actually, really listen. It is not just two sides. There's people in between. Mm -hmm. Or leaning more one side, leaning more the other or side. Or they can agree extreme. with your political course, but want you not to go violent. Mm -hmm. And and I think they're right, because if you go violent, China has every right to send in troops. The world cannot say anything. Oh, they thought the United States can help them. No, they can. Mm -hmm. They cannot. They can make it worse. Recently, uh, Spain went into Catalonia. The world cannot do anything about it. Similar thing. Catalonia won the independence. 1968. Uh, Russia went into Czechoslovakia because of Czechoslovakia tried a different kind of communism, communism with a human face that threatened the USSR and they sent in troops. The world cannot do anything about it. When you have a very, very strong country like China and actually have jurisdiction of the place, the rest of the world is, cannot do anything about its internal affairs. Mm -hmm. They can comment on it, they can condemn it, but they cannot do anything about it. With China, that's that powerful. You definitely you can't you don't want to 
five of them like that. Yeah. But if you, but it did happen with smaller countries that we think we can squash, we'll do it. Syria is a, a good mm-hmm. example. Um, USSR helped one side, uh, the West helped another side, and then you create all kinds of death, terrorism. And then they say, where they come from? Well, because you guys suck. You actually mess up the problem because of foreign help. And I really don't think democracy is the solution. But like people lead that part of populism. I think a better way to call what's going on in Hong Kong is a populist movement, mm-hmm. not different from the United States. United States populism is just the thinking that you get rid of the immigrants, you solve all the problems. The Nazis' uh, populism was that you get rid of the Jews, you, you solve, get, the you solve all yeah. the problems. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong is that uh, you have democracy, you solve all the problems. Yeah, it seems like any problem you have is always much bigger than just narrowing it down to one thing that's going to be the magic solution. And I think this is what we can learn from history. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Even though you're, you don't like history. <laughs> oh, I don't like history. It doesn't mean that I don't learn from it. I don't like math either, but to do science, I must do it. Yes. <laughs> It's one of those nasty things that must be done. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you were to go backwards in history, is there a moment in time that you'd be interested in understanding better? This is a historian question. Give me a problem and then I go back (laughs) in history to find out where the problem comes from. Yeah. Without the problem, I don't have a specific time I want to go to. (laughs) Well, sometimes you want to meet somebody, maybe. Was there, is there no. anybody that you're interested in meeting or talking to, no, having no, a I, conversation? Give me a problem. If I am studying quantum theory, I may want to meet Feynman. If I, if I am studying Hong Kong, I may, I may will go back to lean history, help me solve problems. Mm-hmm. So it is the, the problem. Well, the problem means not really a problem. It's what I'm studying. It's it can be, it yeah. can be a literary work. Mm-hmm. It can be a scientific question it can be a social problem that i'm dealing with like hong kong then i do my homework to find out okay, so where it come from and if we if we flip that then so let's say you live even 20 years later than today and you look back on what's happening now where would your thoughts be would they still be in line to what you're seeing happening now or is there something that you look forward to happening uh, you know, a good solution that you It's a very is good question. Okay, I, because that is really another way to ask what I see as the biggest problem in the future. And I think it will be environmental. That problem has to do with the evolution of capitalism and the question, why all this resistance? And actually, why democracy actually fail in dealing with global disasters? Because... Part of the problem, actually, is there isn't enough political will yeah. and, and too much people scampering with the discourse to deny it. And people, of course, uh, tend to believe in better news and try to make bad news as conspiracy. And you don't want to change the fundamental economic system that lead to the problem, which is consumerism. Because the whole money system, the whole system itself is the problem. So that history will become what's important. So you think that the environmental issues will be some of the biggest issues we'll face? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. The, it will be the biggest. 
Canada is a resource exporter. It has no industry. And we buy cheaply made things from all over the world. In the past decades was China and now it's shifting more to India. The capitalist world, you just have to produce something. Also, we ship uh, uh, garbage out too. Uh, we have oil sand. And uh, the blessing in Canada is that because we are farther north, global warming actually will hit us more slowly. But we also see it more clearly in Canada, in the northern countries, because we see the snow melting, permafrost melting. And that also released the methanes. That is actually much worse in greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So that put Canada in a, in, in a very significant role. Canada is one of the countries that is actually not moving very far oh, because we actually depend on the oil company mm. to make money. Right. So the recent problem with the oil pipe problem actually really shows Canada's Position? Uh, double standard mm -hmm. in, in, in all that. The China, on the other hand, actually is quite active. It actually successfully developed nuclear fusion energy that lasts 12 seconds, I think. The, the most the recent report. What that means is that we can create energy source out of hydrogen and the byproduct is water and to create energy, which will allow us to have uh, clean energy. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to reach the core temperature at about 1 million degree. You need to find a way to have a core at that temperature mm -hmm. without melting it. Because that's exactly what's going on in our sun. And that once you start that reaction... It can keep going on its you, own. Yeah, you don't need energy. The problem actually is how to keep that core running. This is one thing China can do and the rest of the world cannot. There's a tourist spot, really beautiful place called Quailing. And it has the world's best underground water supply source. They made a lot of money out of tourism there. I just went there about a year and a half ago. Tourist bus there cannot leave their engine on and all kinds of really important measures that you can only enforce if you have a party that is not voted in by people because of all the inconvenience and potential negative impact on the economy there. But they just mean making less money. But China was willing to take all those measures to protect the resources and the environment. So the important lesson, I guess, for the environmental impact is to really look at the different countries and the different locations around the world and see what kind of impact they've had. So clean water or proper oxygenation of an area. Yep. And just looking at the different problems we have across the world, because every country seems to have a different issue with the, the environmental issue. You are right. But on the other hand, the environmental issue is global. One country, yes, one country's true. success uh, uh, doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. A lot of countries that is democratic actually are having problems dealing with it. Brazil is the obvious one. And even Canada mm -hmm. is doing... And then the United States, not to say, it is all democracy countries. Inconvenient, the voting mass. And then I know that this is off topic, but Orkney... On the Scottish Islands, they yeah. use windmills and uh, tidal wave technologies. And Costa Rica, they use all environmental energies. How many more people can get on board with trying to harness all these energies? Yeah. And I think they are the really successful democratic countries. Right. The voters vote for the greater good. Rather than the economy. Rather than short-term promises, like cutting tax, mm -hmm. like I don't want carbon tax, like job 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 
uh, pipeline. Similar to what you were saying, how the British had come in and done housing projects and just trying to help the community of Hong Kong long term rather than quick gain. Yeah. So you think that's definitely in the future for trying to make that the environment a, better. Yeah. What I'm against is what we call free market democracy as opposed to democracy period. Free market democracy is the assumption that the market will correct itself. And no, it doesn't. Because there's human elements changing things all the time? Human elements, especially greed. Uh, Hong Kong is actually a good example of it. There was a, a really rich man. His name is Tin Baksan. I don't know how he would say, call himself in English. He's now a representative of Hong Kong in China and China's assembly. He was really rich, Harvard graduate in business, and he joined a reality show by, done by the Hong Kong equivalents of the BBC, Hong Kong Radio. There's a reality show that they send the rich people to live like a poor person for a week. And he was put in those, what we call cage housing, that uh, this room, for the people who don't get to see, is a, is a normal-sized Canadian living room. Yeah. You can actually cut it into two half horizontally and then vertically cut it into four to five sections. So just enough to crawl in and... Just enough to crawl in. So this is, you are talking about 10 units there. Mm -hmm. So they put him in one of that. They call it deluxe because you got a <laughs> shared kitchen and so on. Okay. And then he worked as a janitor, sweep the street elsewhere. Being a really good business grad, he went out and looked at the bus. Uh, I need to be there 6 a.m. in the morning, and there's no bus going there except the overnight bus. But the overnight bus is twice as expensive. Oh, my God. And after the whole, sh after the show, he said, I don't believe in free market economy anymore. The, the, something has to be done by the government. And I agree, environmental problem, education, health, the basic humans need to live decently, needs regulation, needs governmental leadership, mm -hmm. especially if it is a collective government created by democracy or not. Depending on what depending, the population uh, needs. Depending yeah. on what you have, but need that leadership. So I'm, I'm a very reserved democracy believer. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to thank you very much for all the time you've spent and all the information. It's been really fascinating. I, As I had mentioned, I didn't know much about China or Hong Kong. It's not part of the historical studies I've done. But I really appreciate all the time you've spent. Well, thank you for having everything. me, actually. <laughs> i got to look some of the things up myself. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate you pulling out all these dates for us, too, and giving us a bit of context. So yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So I have two book recommendations. I have a fiction and a nonfiction. So the fiction book is called The Piano Teacher by Janice Y.K. Lee. And the second book is the nonfiction, A Documentary History of Hong Kong, Government and Politics by Steve Tsang. You can find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at History A. And apparently, you can rate this podcast on iTunes. As I've said, I'm not really sure how this works, but perhaps you can give me some love. You can also check out the website. And don't forget, all the information's in the show notes. And I can't forget to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without your support, I wouldn't be able to do this. Un grand merci. <laughs>